0: Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas, and welcome to another episode of It's All About Me. And this week's me is innovator and jet suit pilot, Richard Browning. So, Richard, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. pleasure. Now, I looked you up, and there is quite a lot if you put Richard Browning, Gravity Industries, into the internet. It's all over the place, but it comes up on Wikipedia as inventor. That's what it says you are. Is that what you would describe yourself as?
1: Uh, I mean, I sort of uh, have, uh, with somewhat tongue in cheek, described myself as founder and chief test pilot from Gravity. Um, I, I deliberately don't use CEO whenever I always find that a little bit over the top for a, for a startup. Uh, I mean, we're three years old now. You know, Unless you're a medium-sized business, I think calling yourself CEO sounds slightly self it's congratulatory. Um, so, a uh, founder and chief test pilot, uh, it does it for me. And I guess underneath that, part of my role is indeed inventor.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, but I, I sometimes think you might as well just big just it up as much as you can, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I spent 16 years in the corporate world. I, I'm fine to
0: slightly drift away from large titles, <laughs> <laughs> Over, overly self inflated titles. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, anybody who stumbles upon you, they're going to see a lot about jet suits.
1: Yeah, well, yes, indeed. So the last four years of my life have been somewhat dominated by this. I mean, it started with an interesting idea around human flight, somewhat inspired by my childhood sort of background. And uh, also my time with the Royal Marines and doing lots of physical training stuff and sort of mash that all together. And you think flying and humans flying. And wouldn't it be fun if you could reimagine that and very much lean on the human brain from a control and balance point of view and the human body as a flight structure? And just for fun, wouldn't it be really cool to go and see if you could make this work? Because m- pretty much conventional wisdom suggested, you know, even great big clunky jetpacks on your back aren't really feasible, let alone what I envisage, which was a much more small scale, um, more personal to you, lightweight system that would literally allow you to fly. It's such a ludicrous idea. Uh, you know, it still sounds ludicrous. And, and, I, and I just thought, you know what, in my own free time, I, I'll have a go at, you know, having a run at this concept. And off I went, Uh, you know, project number, I don't know, 500 in a lifetime of trying interesting, unusual things, everything from trying to get my Green Beret with the Royal Marines through to becoming an oil trader or setting up a startup. Those are all the successes. And I've got
0: many, many more than that in terms of failures. Well, that is part of it. I mean, as an inventor, as somebody who looks at opportunities and doesn't look at anything as not an opportunity, you know, it's a case of, um, I think for you, keep it on going and you take the falls and the falls are a part of the, of the growth of you and of what you're trying to achieve.
1: Innovation is all about taking risk. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to try something that hasn't been done before to some extent or you're genuinely not innovating. You're just rehearsing what somebody else has already done. OK, you take risk. Corporates especially don't like risk. None of us necessarily like risk. The critical part about risk is what happens when risk manifests? What is the worst case scenario? And uh, we have three measures we apply here from a reputation financial and safety perspective if that risk occurs the worst case scenario happens can i recover can i literally get back up again can i repair the financial damage and you know am i going to jail to put it extremely bluntly <laughs> if it's you know fine on those three checklists then get the hell on with taking the risk and notice that innovation is about spending more time failing and seeing those risks kind of turn up than it is about enjoying successes and actually when you're trying something brand new you've got to get used to the fact that as i say you spend most of the time not getting it right and learning lessons and trying again and if you can't get up and try again you're not innovating you're just gambling it's an interesting kind of mindset that i've found has really applied very well to what we've gone on and done with gravity
0: have you always had that mindset of just give it a go or is it something you've had to develop in yourself?
1: Yeah I'm a bit of a contradiction in some ways you know I I grew up around a maverick father I was an only child I went to boarding school I grew up around a maverick father who was a wonderful inventor creator engineer aeronautical engineer actually uh, and you know wonderful father as well and he was on a journey he left his day job and um uh, went on this journey of setting up his own business. It was all around actually mountain bike suspension, funnily enough, which at the time was a brand new thing. And he genuinely engineered some amazing breakthroughs in that area. And I had instilled in me this sort of vision of like, we're going to be really successful. And one day we might even buy a helicopter or you know, all, all of these sort of visions of what success would really mean. you know. And lo and behold, classic uh, case of small business, it struggled. Um, it wasn't for the lack of the creativity of the engineering it was it was for all the other boring things that surround that um and you know gradually back in the 80s it was a tough business environment and it just went from bad to worse and he ended up losing his life i mean took his own life when i was 15 because of that failed failed journey so i i've had the mother of all lessons in yeah sure have a great idea but look what can go wrong this is why i'm i i'm so passionate about you know the downside survivable and i really really mean that um but at the same time, I've entirely inherited my father's and, and all of my wider family's kind of lust for crazy adventure and doing seemingly impossible things. That, that runs in the family quite a bit, I think. But I have to try and balance those two contradictions. And so the, the result of that has been 16 years in a big corporation in, a, in an entrepreneurial part of it running a trading book. But then I never lost the passion for going down the crazy journey. But I've ended up choosing to do it at a time of life where I suppose I had the financial security mm. of being able to, again, survive it not working out.
0: you touched upon your younger life there. What was your relationship with your dad like growing up then? Oh, it was great. I mean, it, it was,
1: you know, he, he, was a, he was a wonderful father. I used to spend my childhood um, just, I suppose, making, building, breaking, taking things apart in mm-hmm. his, uh, you know, in his workshop. Um, that was entirely my, you know, my existence. Uh, and he was a and inspiring kind of mind of information and, you know, and had this childlike passion for Uh, creativity, and, um, you know, all the things I've talked about, really. So, you know, he was a massive inspiration in my life. And so it was a huge shock. But, you know, I I think we all face challenges in life. And uh, wherever possible, you have to try and derive something positive from them. And yeah, and I suppose I I suppose I've I've tried to do that as best I can. But um, yeah, he was very much a kindred spirit. I mean, uh, if he was around now, I think we'd be more like kind of age disparate brothers than, uh, than father and son, in a way, in that, I know in my bones that what we've gone on and done with this company is exactly in the core of what he loves. So much, I'm looking around my lab now, so much of what he was about is in here. So many of his sort of tools are still here, you know, and you know, there's all sorts of memorabilia from his time when he was an engineer and stuff in this room. So in a way that without sounding too corny, accidentally, this has ended up being a bit of a tribute to his, <laughs> his life and unfulfilled ambition in a way.
0: Yeah, that, I mean that's where that's where the audience whoop and holler, isn't it? That's that's the the sort of the line. That but people, we're British and we don't. We, do we, such we don't. We really. just we do that small yes. hand clap, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So after your dad died, what were you like? Because obviously, as a, as a boy, you lean on your dad a fair bit if you can do. You know, he's teaching you all these different things. So how did you get over that?
1: Yeah, I I don't know that there's there's any real formula for kind of how I kind of got over it. I mean, I. I, I do remember, you know, tender age of 15, um, just sort of seeing this crossroads in front of me um, and I, I could see two pathways. I could see one where you let this this thing make you the victim. And I sort of felt everybody around me uh, would, would allow me to uh, kind of be that victim or just run at life hundred miles an hour and grab every opportunity and suddenly not be scared by anything. Um, and let's just see where it goes. And, and you could interpret that as running away as well. But I, I, I did indeed go for the latter. And suddenly, you know, within months, took up rock climbing and canoeing and running and all the things that I'd previously not been very interested or very good at. I just, I, I relished taking on challenges and in some, hopefully, slightly more than the failures, you know, uh, overcome them and, um, you know, and then move on to the next challenge. And I guess that becomes a bit of a habit. You know, I, I think it's a well kind of proven thing around um you know people who've suffered adversity in early life go on to often
0: either be a complete disaster or um achieve some quite you know unusual things well i think back to what i was like at 15 and i don't think i could think beyond trying to become the next john barnes and i was let's face it never going to be the next (laughs) english jamaican black footballer no matter how hard i (laughs) I think you had a tricky target there yeah absolutely i think it's fascinating to think how there are certain things in your life that when you get to a certain age, I'm 40, you're same age as me, same year of birth. But I look at it and I think it's, it's interesting to look at the catalyst, the things that really propelled you on. And you can start at our age, I think, to identify them. And you can say, well, maybe 15-year-old you, that was one of your, your biggest influences. Oh yeah, no, massively. All this has only
1: dawned on me, by the way, usually through the medium of interviews. It's funny, you sort of sit back and you listen to the huge diversity of questions you get uh, and you listen to yourself answer them and start thinking, oh yeah, I, I didn't really kind of figure that. My whole family background was in, in aviation. I, I should add, uh, I mentioned my father. His father was a wartime pilot and civil pilot after that. And my other grandfather was Sir Basil Blackwell who used to run Western helicopters. So I remember listening to that you know, answer that I was giving and sort
0: of thought, oh my God, that makes sense. And honestly, never, it had never really occurred to me when you piece it all together. So innovation really does run through your veins then. What's your relationship with your mum like?
1: Yeah, yeah, good. I mean, nothing, yeah, n- nothing wrong. I mean, I think we both went through um, a pretty ridiculous ordeal at that time. Mm. Um, I think we coped with it in very different ways. I think we both do carry those kind of scars. Um, yeah, difficult, really.
0: So sticking with family, your wife, she's been with you through this entire process.
1: Yes, we used to work on the civilian side of the police when we were in London and um, then got pretty much overrun by our two boys who were only 17 months apart. And when we moved out closer to her parents here in Salisbury, um, she's focused on looking after them as they got a bit older. She used to do some accounts work and she's now doing some of the accounts work, sort of bookkeeping stuff for Gravity and um, generally keeping me and the family sane. Um, but she's, yeah, she's presided over the whole kind of journey. And uh, whilst, of course, being slightly sceptical and questioning as to what exactly her husband was doing, i never... Uh, ever stopping me you know, kind of following my passions here, so I'm very grateful to that.
0: yeah, what's the saying behind that. every strong man's a stronger woman, I think something like that uh yeah,
1: yeah, no, I think you're right I think uh, yeah, she's had to she's had to have the faith faith in me that I knew what
0: I was doing, which wasn't necessarily the case all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine, especially when she's seen some of the uh, the fails along the way uh, yes indeed I, I mean standing in that farmyard
1: um in the early days, I think you could be forgiven for wondering what the hell was going on.
0: What's it like for you being a, a dad doing what you do?
1: Yeah, no, it's lovely. Um, I've got um, 13 and 11-year-old boys, and they're rapidly heading towards the age where, you know, I lost my father, and therefore it's going to be kind of really nice to <laughs> to sort of reverse live the years that I didn't have my father around. So that's going to be a fun kind of time. But yeah, it's great. I'm very lucky with my two boys and my wife, and uh, they're very supportive of their unusual father doing unusual things. Uh, it's great it really is cool. I mean, they've grown up around thinking that jet suits and, um, having, you know, uh, a whole variety of, of great, interesting, often quite well-known people hanging around our house and stuff is, um, is kind of normal. So they're, they're quite hard to shock.
0: So, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's lovely having that family life. And they must be extremely proud. They must be the talk of the classroom a lot of times.
1: They, they, are pretty cool cucumbers. I think they don't really, they don't really play that up very much. I think, you know, I've flown to both their schools before when I came under pressure to go and do that. but. Uh, yeah, I, there was a lovely moment when my eldest was uh, flying a Mavic uh, little drone. He was sitting on, a, on the park bench on the playing fields. I was like 50 yards further along the playing fields and a sort of 100 yards the other way was all the tennis courts of this school they used to be at. And there was, must have been 600 kids screaming and shouting, pressed up against the chain link fence the other side, you know, on the tennis court. And he was sitting there by himself on the park bench with this Mavic, just working out, you know, the shots he was going to get. He's quite good at flying these drones. He must have been, I don't know, 11 at the time. And I was there, I was ready to take off, and I just sort of glanced at him, and I could see him looking at me, looking down the Mavic, and then looking up every now and then, and sort of slightly like you do at that age, slightly nervously at this huge baying mob of kids, all super excited. I could see it in his eyes, it was a bit like, yeah, this isn't that normal, is it, actually? (laughs) (laughs) You know, all these kids were sort of living the excitement that in no way they haven't really lived, because they just grew up around this as it grew. So they haven't really had that shock factor of somebody landing a 1,000 horsepower, seemingly superhero jet suit right in front of you you know they they just think that's kind of normal they used to goof around at this little farmyard down the road where we used to do all the testing and watch gradually as it came together so that's fun to watch
0: now i've seen some of the videos of you learning to fly which you can still find on youtube by the way but what was that actually like it was a sort of cumulative process of lots of increasingly less bad <laughs>
1: attempts until I finally got the gear together. So I've got the most artificial experience, I think.
0: I've seen you fly. I've had a go, you know, albeit on a tether and, uh, you know, a mild hover. Once you had had a go in that suit, I don't know, can you carry on imagining and remembering what it was like? Because you're the guy who invented it, so you never really got to see anybody having a go, really, although you have worked with people who fly now.
1: Yeah, the most sort of authentic in a way is watching, um, you know, a client come along and, uh, you know, go from the morning of, frankly, probably underneath it a little bit scared by what this is, then the realization that like you've had that it actually when you're in it, it's really very benign. And then this amazing moment when they just look up and grin, and they get it, and it's as natural as riding a bicycle, hmm. that that's a lovely process to kind of witness. So I, I relive it a little bit every time I see that, I think.
0: your sporting credentials then ultra marathon runner
1: uh, yes I, I suppose the the the, the kind of storyline here was you know at school i really didn't like sport at all i, I guess i've always hated being kind of told what to do in a way so therefore organized sport always i suppose was a bit of a challenge uh from that front but i wasn't very sporty as a kid at all and then as i got older after i was 15 you know i got into sort of uh outdoor pursuit stuff climbing and canoeing i used to be terrified of heights and so that was one of the things I I suppose I overcame, you know, enjoyed overcoming. Rock climbing is great in that way, because if you're on a rope, a top rope, you you really are exposed to just recognizing your own irrational fear. You know, if if properly set up, a rock climbing top rope is probably safer than driving to where you're climbing. Um, So you really can just look at your irrational fear of heights and go, for God's sake, what am I worried about here? Um, Anyway, I I then got a a sort of passion for the military, I suppose, thinking that uh, that was a sort of hotbed of, personal challenge um you know and and somewhere where you could really go and push your mental physical you know limits and stuff and I got into running and sort of all the Duke of Edinburgh sort of hiking stuff there uh joined the Royal Marines Reserve One after you know uh university and that really pushed my personal kind of limits. Mm. But I, I suppose I most enjoyed the running and uh, running's just so great. You just stick your trainers in a bag. So yeah, I got into doing uh, ultramarathons and I suppose I went through a weird phase. Like, this is a funny one. I went through a weird phase of running really late at night. When I was an oil trader, I used to come home. I used to be getting up at five in the morning, getting home at seven in the evening. And um, but after five days of that, I'd be pretty wired. And um, Saturday morning, perversely, I'd be up at like one in the morning thinking, gosh, I'm ready to commute again. And the only way I could really detune my brain was to just get my trainers on. This kind of got, I was going to say worse and worse, but it was quite a cool thing in a way, uh, until I realized I started logging my runs and I was running like marathon distances at night with no, you know, without bothering taking any water or food or anything. I was, I was happily running those kind of distances. So I thought, why don't I just go and enter a a short ultramarathon about 50 K one. And that is short in the ultramarathon world. And I came like 10th or ninth, I think and did it with the dog. I mean, I was mostly carrying dog treats <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, I, I'm, I'm not too bad at this kind of trogging along slowly forever kind of thing. And so I topped out at um, the Ridgeway Run, which is 100 odd miles or something like that. Or no, it's 138, 130K, I think, right. um, over two days and a night. And um, yeah, I did all right in that, but they are a unique opportunity to delve deep inside your mind and body to places you don't usually get to. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a phenomenal experience, but
0: uh, hard, hard earned, I have to say. So the furthest I've run is 33 kilometres on my training for the London Marathon. I put the trainers on once a week now.
1: No, that's good. That's probably a lot more healthier. You can, you can very
0: quickly get into the unhealthy realm when it comes to uh, ultramarathons if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'd ever fall into that particular category. But when you look at your career and your life, it certainly seems that you have got one of those inquiring minds. Again, it's the same theme of just enjoying kind of pushing,
1: uh, you know, in pushing myself in ways that you know frankly i i um i'm i'm my greatest skeptic when i start these things and think you know wouldn't it be cool to be able to uh, get to x level you know whatever level or let's say get my green beret with the Royal Marines that sounds unachievable and then just doing my best to try and keep picking myself up until i kind of get to that goal i mean it's um it's what everybody does that's going to try and achieve everything from running their first 5k park run to setting up your own business or doing anything in life really it's just uh it's just another variant of the same theme really
0: You left school, you, you got into a career, you've left that career and gone down a completely different route. Did you at any point think, this is the, r- this is the wrong decision, I need to just carry on working? I, I was
1: lucky in the sense that I, I launched this while I was still working for BP. I warned them that I was, you know, I'd done this funny thing in my evenings and weekends and it might get some attention. Uh, it just kind of went mad. We did like a billion impressions within the first week of launching it with Wired and Red Bull back in April 2017. And then I got the invite to go and do the TED Talk in Vancouver, and then it just kind of escalated from there. So I kept BP informed, and they were very generous in giving me a career break, which gave me the mental satisfaction of being able to know I could go back if, if this uncharted journey didn't work out. But I, I very much questioned during the development journey from sort of March 2016 through to that launch uh, a year later, I very much questioned my, my investment of time. Uh, Hugely, I did. Um, But I knew that I could fall back on the fact at that stage, I still had a day job, Um, you know, and and I'm a firm believer, because of that sort of unusual childhood, I'm a firm believer in trying to have a bit of a portfolio of activity, which means that if you're doing something a bit extreme, I don't know, like you're committing to run a polar marathon or something, if you've got a healthy family life, and, you know, you're, you're working on some small business and your day job's okay, I, I see that as you've got a series of, of life buckets and if hopefully most of them are doing okay at any one time, if one of them suddenly falls on its face, you take some mental strength from the ones that aren't going bad. I'm, I'm terrified of putting all my eggs in one basket and then hoping that goes well. And then if that starts to go bad, I, I feel very exposed in that way. I think that was probably what got my father down in that he'd thrown everything into that one basket and and that is quite a vulnerable place to be.
0: Keep your feet on the ground, which is ironic because you spend most of the time you're doing <laughs> yeah, is, is the opposite, right? I'm, I'm yeah, pleased keep with that grounded, one. <laughs> You know, not crash
1: and burn. You know, all those kind of things. Yeah, there's quite a few.
0: What a lot of people know your name or associate you with is human flight. This is the angle of your career that we all know you for. Now, jet suits and jet suit racing is something that you are pioneering. Yes, indeed. Yes. So, how do you Come to that point, and how do you think, right, we can now fly these suits? We've now got enough people. Let's start racing. Right. So
1: there is actually some degree of logic to this. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that that I, I went down this entire journey purely and genuinely, just for the joy of the challenge. I didn't have any ideas about building this into a business. Upon seeing the reaction of a few people when we launched this, I kind of thought, oh my goodness, this deserves to be packaged up with a bit of a brand. And when we push it out into the open ocean of the public opinion, it'd be quite nice to give it a fair win, right? So launch it with Wired and Red Bull as two brilliant brands to manifest human and technology kind of pioneer spirit. Now we sit here, I'm sitting underneath um, a forest of lanyards from 103 events in 30 countries. We've accidentally gone and been paid to poll several million people around the world, both live and also online, with what we've done. And it's been a really valuable process because, you know, what the hell have we gone and made, right? You know, what, what is this for? Is <laughs> a perfectly valid question that I used to get in the early days. Um, and actually, it was just for the joy of the challenge. Why do you climb to the top of a mountain? There's nothing up there apart from achievement. And then you've got to go all the way down again. So actually, having achieved this, um, it's been really fascinating to see the degree to which we seem to inspire and, and, and entertain people. So why not then go and scale that into a sort of bigger format rather than just one-off events, And then it suddenly dawns on you that motorsport, you know this better than I do, motorsport is very much about entertainment, inspiration, and leaving a trail of hopefully usable technology that might roll into everyday lives. ABS came from motorsport, as far as I understand. Uh, And yet, in the meantime, it's entertaining, inspiring, it's a great advertising platform, you know, and all of that. So we suddenly thought, well, we can do that in a small scale. Why can't we go and entertain? And, And actually, the ability for us to go and package up what we do and ship it around the world is really easy. So why not just run with that? And actually... If in the background, we've got all this military R&D work going on, we've got search and rescue work going on, we've got a 200 people on our client waiting list now to come and learn to train, then actually racing is a pinnacle activity to really showcase what we can do that might also accelerate the R&D to the point where there are more mainstream applications. You know, we built our own electric one as well, then let's roll with it. And so that, that's the logic. And I, I feel like that stands up to scrutiny, but you're very welcome to try and
0: <laughs> challenge that. What I think is, is fascinating about the whole thing is that once you start freeing up your mind about what you can achieve, it is incredible what you can go on to achieve. I remember speaking to you um, quite a few months ago and you said that you don't come from an engineering background really, so you didn't know what you couldn't do. You know, my, my whole family background was from an
1: engineering kind of world, but I didn't know enough to know what wasn't supposed to be possible. And if you, if you unpick enough negatives there, that's essentially saying, you know, I knew enough to know where to begin an experiment. But, but I wasn't burdened by a formal training. I wasn't burdened with enough textbook battery <laughs> to be immediately discarding what um, was in my mind as just you know, impossible and silly and would never work. There are joyfully about half a dozen engineering assumptions that would suggest this is impossible. They include things like the gyroscopic effect of those engines. Um, there was a huge suggestion that that would make this impossible. There was massive suggestion that the heat, the power, the thrust... Um, vibration, all sorts of mad things are thrown at me as to why this would be impossible. You'd never be able to carry enough fuel and all sorts. I didn't really care about that because underneath all of those, oh, it's impossible statements is usually lurking every now and then a breakthrough. turns out that, you know, people willing to take the leap into the unknown, every now and then they prove to be, you know, pioneers and and
0: leaders rather than foolish. What would you describe throughout your life maybe it's it's an obvious one or throughout your life and through innovation has been your lowest low um from an innovation point of view um i mean
1: gosh that's kind of tricky I, i think most innovators are pretty good at not lingering too long on their failures yeah that's a re- that's a really interesting one. Um to be honest I think probably and it's not really a moment but I suppose I sort of had a pretty low period when I I was somewhat trapped in my corporate existence and this is not to dish the corporate in question all big organizations public or private suffer from the same challenge to manage individuals on a huge scale you know you end up confining creativity and having to apply the rule book more than most people like me would like to have applied. Um, but you know, feeling like I had all this inner creativity and I, I was, I wanted to go on and do more if you like, and yet being kind of tied to something that was not really me. And yeah, I, I would say living for several years in that kind of environment, look, I I'm sure many people listening to this will empathize with periods in their lives where they have to do a job that they didn't really enjoy or within a political environment that they didn't really like. And 99.99% of the world's population are doing jobs probably that they wouldn't choose to do sadly. I suppose what I've gone on to do has proven the extent to which that frustration was real in the, you know, how can I go from 16 years working in a corporate to then suddenly doing what I've gone on and done now? You know, that just shows how much that was sitting there untapped, if you like, or or confined.
0: Stifling a creativity that was sort of bubbling under. Yeah, I would say so. And so the opposite then, the highest high?
1: Oh, I mean, there's been quite a few with this journey, but I would say there, there was one where... Yeah, there was one where I was on a business trip around the time of the launch, the formal launch of Gravity, and um, and I knew that Red Bull had done their main launch film, and uh, it was they, they were going to share it with me, and I was sitting in a hotel room. It was really late at night. I was kind of jet lagged. When I just paused before I, I watched it because they wanted to kind of sign off on it, but I knew realistically I couldn't ask them to change it significantly um, because it was all a kind of goodwill thing. You know, I hadn't paid them to do any of this, hmm. and I just thought, oh my god. It, If this film hasn't correctly tapped into the atmosphere, the ethos, the brand, you know, the kind of the whole feeling of, you know, not silly, you know, a sort of genuine pioneer spirit thing, then I'm a bit stuck because this is going to go out and it's going to set us off on the wrong path and I risk looking foolish and, you know, what am I doing? And I watched there by myself in this dark hotel room and watched their kind of release. And I mean, God, it sort of brought tears to my eyes. It's just beautifully done. And it really wonderfully captured the spirit. And I just thought at that moment this is probably going to be okay because when this goes out, I think people will get it. Yeah. Uh, and it did, and it went mad. And it was, it was brilliant. And, and I, I think I've had a f- quite a few of those validatory moments I, I know what this journey has been like, but each one of those moments, you just take a step back and go, goodness me, every now and then a crazy idea doesn't have come off.
0: Too many pinch me moments, but that sounds absolutely the way it should be for someone like you, someone who innovates and keeps us excited. Richard, thank you very much indeed. It's been absolutely fascinating.
1: No, well, my pleasure. And, and um, I can't help but just flag that um, given this is audio and uh, if people want to see some visuals, then our YouTube especially has got an increasing amount of uh, behind the scenes and event and fun kind of clips and stuff on it at Gravity Industries. So if people want to kind of hunt that down, they're very welcome.
0: Huge thanks to Richard Browning. And if you want to find out more about him, and indeed, jet suits and jet suit racing. Here's what you need to do: go onto Instagram or Twitter and search "Take on Gravity." Go to gravity.co or search "Take on Gravity" on Google. And if you want to find out about Richard himself, just search Richard M. Browning on all the social media platforms. I'm Bryn Lucas, and you've been listening to It's All About Me. Thanks for listening.